1 Timothy 1.12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for your patience, Jason. Um, listen, I do, before we get into today's text, I do want to say uh, at a personal level, as one who's currently serving in the leadership of Bethany Church, uh, along with Pastor Jeff, um, I have been deeply touched, genuinely moved by the consistent and genuine expressions of care and concern for Jeff and his health, as he says, in these recent months. Um, Many times a week, I'm in touch either by phone or sitting over coffee with uh, some of you within the, the life of the church, sometimes uh, visiting newer folks to the church, uh, and uh, somehow even there, the, the question is, and the concern is, so how is Jeff doing? So along with him, I'm also thankful. It looks like we've got some explanation now, something to work with, uh, a bit of a direction. And so thank you, uh, for your faithful prayers and for being an example of how a church family should properly love on and care for its pastor and his family. You guys have been amazing in that regard. I am so thankful for that, and I simply wanted to have you hear that from me as well. Well, it was a violent storm at sea that was the turning point of John Newton's life. He was left without a mother at age six, and at age 11, he was sent out onto the high seas to find his own way, to earn a living on his own. Soon he became a teenage rebel. He was press-ganged into service in the Navy, and he wasn't into the Navy all that long before he was flogged for desertion. Newton became involved with the African slave trade and became, uh, or came close to starvation as a young man. While living in Sierra Leone, he actually, many folks don't realize this, was a slave himself, living in utter poverty, but almost died in the country of Sierra Leone. In the mid-1700s, he became one of the most wicked men that ever sailed the high seas in the degrading business of slave trading. Newton carried a rough leather whip at his side, and many undeserving and innocent 
Africans had their backs laid bare as a result of its cruel lash. It was in March of 1748, at the age of 23, that Newton was on a cargo ship that was fighting for its life in the midst of incredibly rough seas and uh, weather that was incredibly inclement. It was at that time where Newton had reached a point of virtual physical exhaustion. He had been working primarily to be bucketing the water, the seawater that belonged in the sea, out of the ship so that that ship would not be sunk at the sea. He was at his wits end because he had nothing left to give. It looked like it would be certain death. And so Newton, also being virtually frozen from the winds and the conditions out of the sea, he called out to God for God's mercy at the very height of that battle against the storm, and he was amazed that he was actually saved from what appeared to be certain death. Eventually, he renounced his involvement in slave trading, later joined forces with William Wilberforce in convincing the British Parliament to abolish the practice of slavery in the Commonwealth. At the age of 39, he became a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had the following inscription written on his tombstone. I, John Newton, once an invidal, once a libertine, a servant of slaves, was by the rich mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ preserved, pardoned, restored, and called to proclaim the faith I had long labored to destroy. What a testimony. And yes, what a rather large tombstone, more than likely. And as many of you realize, it was John Newton who wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Probably the best-known hymn across the world throughout the ages is indeed Amazing Grace by John Newton. It truly is a sinner's testimony of God's grace. As we are allowing for some voice rest for Jeff, we're going to dig in this morning and give a wonderful privilege that I have of examining with you a similar testimony to that of John Newton. It's authored by an individual who claimed to be the worst sinner in the history of mankind. You may think you've met that person, you may have a relative that you would put in that category, but you would have to argue with Scripture. Because Paul claimed that he was that individual. And this testimony comes from the depths of a truly thankful heart that wanted to praise God for salvation in Jesus Christ. An opportunity we have consistently, but one we exercise corporately whenever we gather here for worship on these Sunday mornings together. It really is a privilege to do that. So moments ago, as Anna was reading Scripture for us, you heard the testimony of the Apostle Paul as it is recorded in the first chapter of the first letter that Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy. Paul's heartfelt outburst of praise 
perfectly fits the pattern and the purpose of this letter of 1 Timothy. Let me take a brief moment to explain that because if you see how it fits that pattern, it seems to me that it's got all the more impact. You realize how God through His Spirit strategically placed that testimony, first of all provided that testimony for Paul, but then why it was placed there. So the primary purpose that Paul had in asking Timothy to remain in Ephesus is so that he could help that church and the surrounding churches as they were engaged in great warfare, almost like hand-to-hand spiritual combat with the false teachers who were propagating doctrinal error. They were essentially proclaiming a message of salvation that left out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it was works-based. It was focused on the keeping of the law. Those are so 180 degrees apart, you can't overemphasize how different they actually are. And so Paul has basically commissioned Timothy to, to be there, to lead the troops, lead the spiritual troops, lead those churches in the battle against false teaching that would completely cut the heart out of the Christian message. Timothy remained in Ephesus so he could be a counterbalance to the impact of the false teachers there. So not only did Paul say, Timothy, I need you there. That is your place. God needs to use you there. But it's like now he is supplying them with one very important tool. And that very important tool is a very effective illustration of the power and the impact of the true gospel as compared or in contrast to the impotence and the disastrous effects of the perversion of that gospel by false teachers. Are you with me so far? I, I may not have explained that in the way that I should have. Are, are you with me? You got it? You see why it was so important for Timothy to be able to have this perfect illustration of what the power of the true gospel does in our lives. A gospel centered in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on our behalf, his resurrection for us. So let's go to the text with that in mind. And Paul's testimony begins on a note of thanksgiving for Paul's appointment to God's service. That in verse 12. Let's reread that. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, Timothy, excuse me, Paul had just mentioned in verse 11 the gospel that had been committed to his trust, and right after that, he is bursting into praise for what that very gospel had done in his life. Praise for that gospel and thanksgiving to God for making that all possible. This remarkable testimony, as Anna read it a moment ago, is an outflowing of praise from a heart that is filled with the amazement of an individual, amazement at the splendor of God's grace. And today we're defining that grace, you have it in your notes, as God's free, undeserved, unearned forgiveness and favor. Well, let me ask you this question. Why do you think that Paul was so overwhelmed that he had been 
entrusted with the gospel. How is it such that he just cannot help himself from bursting out with this uh, outpouring of praise to God and gratitude for the, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Verse 13a really answers that question for us. Paul goes on, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. What is happening here is Paul is remembering his career as an opponent of Christianity. And that enhanced his gratitude for being chosen to serve. And I would suggest to you this morning that perhaps the most effective way to maintain humility, which is a good thing, by the way, and the most effective way to maintain a heart of gratitude toward God is to remember the pit from which he dug you. Sadly, there are some of us who could have and do at times maybe reflect this mistaken notion that that pit wasn't all that deep. It wasn't all that dark. It wasn't all that horrible. But when we look at the pit from which God dug each of us from a scriptural standpoint, no, it's very dark. It's very deep. It's as bad as it gets, whether we might realize that or not. Now, let me point this out. For me, this was helpful in reinforcing the message Paul's getting at. Please note that in the original language of of the New Testament, the order of this triad in verse 13 reflects increasing wickedness and evil. So first, Paul says that he was a blasphemer. A blasphemer. In other words, he denied Christ's messianic claims, and he claimed that Jesus Christ was an imposter. That's blasphemy. Second, he had been a persecutor. He vigorously pursued Christians even into foreign cities. And third, ESV says he was an insolent opponent. I'm going with the NASB, New American Standard, a translation on that because I believe it more accurately captures the heart of what Paul is trying to express and to say, here's how bad I was and here's how great God's grace is. He was a violent aggressor. Paul's contempt for Christians broke forth in all sorts of insulting and outrageous acts against them. So he was. He fits the definition of a violent aggressor. Now as we read on um, further into verse 13 on into verse 14 we see that the grace of Christ stands in shocking contrast to Paul's own shameful conduct. I'll pick up and have you follow along in whatever form of Scripture you have with you today after he says that he was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In receiving his ministry as an ambassador of Christ, Paul recognized that he had been the recipient of mercy. I really appreciate the way this appears in the original text because the verb there is in what is called the passive tense. It quite literally would be translated I was 
mercied. Who is the focus on if it says, I was mercied? Doesn't that kind of point at, well, who did the mercying? Ah, so God's the one that's the focal point here. I was merely the object of that mercy. Part of what that indicates too, yes, it was all about God. It was nothing about earning, nothing about deserving, nothing about the fact, man, he finally got his life together. Now God really wanted him now. None of that whatsoever. All God's grace and mercy. God's mercy in Christ for you and me also is never in response to any good act on our part. One writer expressed it this way, that Paul was the undeserving object of divine pitying love. Feel welcome to submit your name. Feel welcome to submit my name there. Jack was the undeserving object of divine pitying love. And how I thank God for it. One hymn writer famously captured the feeling that was in Paul's heart. I believe it is a feeling that God would want to be in your heart and my heart, and a feeling he would never want to leave our hearts. And I feel I'm responsible for that in some way, and I don't know what I did, so I'll... I think this is off-center. Let me get that fixed. There, we're good. Beneath the cross of Jesus, don't you love this expression? And from my smitten heart, with tears, tears of, I'm sure, rejoicing, gratitude, just weeping, almost in the amazement that God would save a wretch like me. But to wonders I confess, the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. Mm. At the end of verse 13, Paul goes on to state that none of his injurious acts, none of his offensive acts were done intentionally against God. Now, this is not Paul trying to get himself off the hook. This is not Paul living in denial. Hey, it really wasn't me. I have my childhood to blame. No, none of that. He claims, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. What is that saying? Paul is trying to communicate this, that he had not deliberately acted against God. He had not stubbornly hardened his heart. He had not willfully resisted the Holy Spirit. Rather, he had acted in blind, unreasoning prejudice, mistakenly thinking, and it's a huge mistake, but mistakenly thinking that he was serving God and honoring God and being faithful to the law of God that gave testimony to God. How is he expressing that faithfulness, that love for, that devotion to? By trying to absolutely wipe out this movement, this new movement called Christianity, which he considered to be blasphemous. His zealous attempt to please God by keeping the law apart from the gospel, and if any of us are tempted to try to be that good Christian, impress God, please God, without the power of the gospel at work within us, we may well be the ones that do our equivalent of blasphemy of 
being a violent aggressor, a persecutor. And there's a long list of things that that'll, that direction will take us. Now, listen to this. Draw this connection based on we said, what we said earlier about why Paul commissioned Timothy to be at Ephesus. What an indictment against the false teaching taking place at Ephesus, which was emphasizing salvation apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul has just laid it out. Here is what the false gospel did in my life. It resulted in me thinking I was pleasing God, thinking I was honoring God, thinking I was being a faithful servant of His, devoted to Him, and in reality, it was the height of disobedience. I was working against God. I did not have the power of that gospel in my life. So no wonder I did the things that I did because I did not have the power to fight those urges in my life. And so you have this statement in your notes. A righteous, God-pleasing life comes only by the power and influence of God as Jesus Christ occupies the control center of life. Wouldn't you be willing to admit with, with me today, if, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know that it is only because He is in that control center, a control center that we fight Him for still on a daily basis, but it is absolutely only at the point that He is in the control center of our lives, only when we are under the influence and direction of His Holy Spirit, can, is there any possibility of our living as we should in a way that honors Him. Only in that way can we possibly treat people in the way that they need to be treated. Only then can we have freedom from a preoccupation with ourselves. I want my way. I'm going to defend myself. It's about me. When Paul's ignorance, remember he said, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Foolish me. When that ignorance was shattered on the Damascus Road by a mighty burst of enlightenment from God, Paul started becoming a new man. He was no longer an unbeliever, one who failed to believe in the power of the living God who could absolutely transform. You might be familiar with um, the name out of history, Plutarch. Ancient times was the... Greek biographer, he told of a Spartan wrestler at the Olympic Games who was offered a considerable bribe if he would simply abandon the struggle, give up the fight. He refused, and after considerable effort and immense pain, toil, trial, blood, and the rest, he achieved a victory. Someone asked him, what have you got out of the costly victory that you won? He answered, I have won the privilege of standing in front of my king in battle. I've won the privilege of standing in front of my king in battle. That was the honor that was given to any Spartan who won victory in the games. His reward was to serve and, if necessary, to die for his king. 
from what I've said and what we've learned together about the Apostle Paul this morning, don't you see the similarity between him and the attitude of that Spartan wrestler? I mean, Paul got it. He, he understood it. He had that same spirit. His joy was to stand with his king, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whatever battle it may be. Any of the many battles that flow out of our battle against Satan, his emissaries, people who are not surrendered to the Lord, but somehow living for Satan, or the false teachers that were propagating absolute lies that were an offense to the holy God who wanted to have his transforming power at work within people's lives, but were uh, being blocked as a result of that false doctrine. He told the Philippians, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Mindful of the deep pit out of which God has graciously dug him, Paul put himself in the king's service, right out in the front. As a part of Paul's testimony, he explains in verses 15 and 16, the purpose of God's grace in bringing about his salvation. Follow with me as I read that. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In the original language, that's just saying, in case you're not convinced that it is the real deal, we'll say it twice, and one way we say it is, uh, not whole nother, we won't go into that in detail, but um, that's what is involved here. Uh, it is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, there's absolutely nothing more trustworthy that can be said than the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. He goes on to say, but I received mercy. Talked about that early, didn't he? He received it. He did not earn it. He received it as a gift. For this reason, what's that? That in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Let's unpack that really briefly. Uh, and you have a note in your bulletin that the central truth of the gospel stated in verse 15 is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What a crystal clear statement of why Christ came as the incarnate God to earth. And to that Paul adds, of whom I, I, am the foremost. Almost like saying that the surgeon went into the operating room to remove a tumor. The purpose of the scrubbing up and all the different forms of uh, preparation, and we have a doctor in the house, I hope I get this right. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Kenton. Uh, but all of that preparation was in order and for the specific purpose of removing the tumor. See, and I'm not sure I quite caught that connection with Paul. Let me help you with that one. It's like Paul is arguing, you know, if I had been the one with the tumor and God had been the one doing the surgery, I had the largest tumor in the history of mankind. I mean, they needed a truck to carry that thing out of the operating room. Also got a, 
a doctor of sorts. Man, I'm pinned in. I'm going to move away from that story because the more I talk about medical stuff, the greater the likelihood something's going to be wrong. But Paul knew that his own salvation was indicative of God's saving purpose for all sinners and that that was divinely intended to be an example for others who would believe in Jesus Christ. This is rich. This is worth the entire passage right here. After all, the word that is translated example in verse 16 means an outline, a sketch, a pattern. It was used to describe a model that had been built and placed in front of somebody so that it could be copied. Paul's salvation was an outline. It was an example of God's perfect patience with sinners. You see, God saved the world's worst pagan and made him the world's greatest Christian to show the power of his grace and his patience. And so this morning, hear this clearly, please. That if God is so patient, if in the sense that he is, by the way, if he is so patient with such vile, blasphemous, slanderous, persecuting, and outrageous contact, conduct excuse me, that Paul exhibited, if he's patient enough to endure all of that and still redeem him, still make him an apostle, I say to you, Scripture would say to you, no one is beyond his grace. No one. You may think you're that person who is. Again, you may think you know someone who is. That is not the case. Paul was a pattern or an illustration that God can save any sinner. And as Paul reflected on the depth of sin from which he had been lifted and the grace which it has saved him, his heart opened wide with praise to the God who did it all, not 60, 65, maybe 80, 85, or into the 90s of percent. God did it all. And so this expression of praise, verse 17, to the king of ages, the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory, forever and ever. Amen. If you are seated here today, you know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. You should have a thankful heart. Right? Thankful heart. If you've grown somewhat cold in that area, or you're honestly thinking, man, boy, what Paul was expressing there, that, that's incredibly rare for me to really just be overcome, whether it's emotionally or my mind, to just be riveted on the reality of what God has done on my behalf, the pit that he dug me out of, the life that he has given to me, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of his mercy, 
And if those thoughts just don't enter your mind often and your, your heart doesn't uh, feel like it wants to express itself in this way, so I, I, let's all just make sure we reach back repeatedly and remember our sinfulness and understand the grace of God once again that even if we're introverted types, there's a manner in which man, we're just expressing that gratitude to the only and true God. Um, I think another great way that could be expressed, and I was sharing with the first service, this, man, I'm immersed in this stuff over the recent days. You would think that uh, my feeble uh, mind is not so feeble it wouldn't grasp this thought. I thought, the, the other thing that just hit me, it's probably what I, if that thought would have hit me on Tuesday or Wednesday when I started this, I probably would have run this direction. And you're saying, I wish you would have. Uh, but is the whole idea that, look what happened to Paul. Out of that gratitude, what happened? He was zealous for his Lord. He engaged in the mission. He said, I, I want to be in the, right out there ahead of the pack to take any of the, the darts that come this way. Take any of the arrows. He wanted to stand in front of his king in battle. And are you willing to just really get in the game? Engage in the mission in a way that's consistent with your wiring. Well, how about if you're not a Christian today? My hope is that what you've heard more clearly than anything else is that it truly, before God, in terms of a gift that he wants for you, it doesn't matter what the nature of your sin or sins are. It doesn't matter to him how deep uh, it is, how much the tentacles of that sinful habit have just engulfed you. It doesn't matter if you have concluded that it, it's a hopeless mess at this point, that there is no way out, that that pit is so far down, there's no way even a God who we've referred to today could possibly pull me out of that. I'm encouraging you to think of Paul's example here. The, the reason his testimony has been preserved in history is for all of us to know that we are never out of the reach of his grace. There is no such thing as a helpless case. You are able to be saved by the grace of God. I hope you will hear that. That is that's not my message to you. My message to you doesn't matter. What God's message is to you has eternal significance. You can never do anything that is so bad and you can never do it so long and over an extended enough time period that he will lose his love for you or his desire to mercy you and flood you with his grace. And so, Father, we... We come incredibly humbly, incredibly in gratitude to you today. God, we pray for the pure, undiluted gospel of Jesus Christ to be truly embraced by every one of us that is here this morning. A gospel, a salvation that speaks nothing Nothing about human achievement, but it speaks everything of divine accomplishment. And so we break into expressions of praise to say thank you, Jesus.
Thank you for your work on the cross that cancels out the power, the grip of our sin. Thank you for transforming power expressed in the grace of our God, in whose name we pray. Amen.